AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for August 16th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined today online by Jim Clausing. Jim, how's it going? Going well, going well. Glad to hear it. And here on the couch by Manny Ortiz. Manny, how's it going? Not bad. I'm here, unfortunately, all by myself, but... It looks lonely over there, yeah. It's a little bit lonely. We'll have some friends for you next time. <laughs> uh, I'm Matt Kaiser, and let's get into this week's stories right away. Uh, Manny, I think this one belongs to you. Something to do of uh, tampering with video signals. Yeah, so, so this one was just interesting, um, <clears throat> especially since I just got back from doing the whole Black Hat DEF CON thing, which was very interesting. So this one is something that came out of, out of the DEF CON. Um, so <clears throat> it's, uh, it's basically video jacking, which is, was sort of, um, uh, it, it's a term that was created by a couple of guys this year, but based on something that happened back in, that was discovered back in 2011 during a similar DEF CON conference. Um, where they had coined the term uh, juice jacking. So I think we all know the juice, juice jacking from, from 2011, which was basically the, the charging stations mm -hmm. that were set up that were basically malicious char charging stations. So right. charging stations. You plug stations, it in, you get more than just data. You get data more, along with your, your right, power. More than a little bit of power, right, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so we, I think we probably talked about it you know, back then, about you know, sort of the, the precautions that you had to take and stuff. And, um, so this, so they decided to try to go a little bit further with this one, and see if there were other things that they could do based on this this theory of you know that people always need to have charging done mm -hmm. uh, um, on their devices, right? Everyone's always looking to, to charge their device. So they decided to see if they could. Um, a lot of the like the Android-based devices allow you to do the video mirroring. Okay. So, so they decided to see if they could set up a, uh, another charging station where instead of just being able to pull back data from it because you were actually in fact connected to some sort of machine or something, mm -hmm. you, in essence, they created a way to mirror and then record that video um, from the phone itself. Oh, interesting. So what that allowed them to do, which was interesting was, um, so if you had a phone and you had a passcode, an unlock code to get into your phone, those key presses on the screen would actually get recorded. Uh, okay. um, so as long as you're plugged into their charger, you're giving up your, your password if you, if you log in. Exactly, exactly. So, it, you know, so again, it allows you to basically, it allowed them to basically record all of that stuff. Whatever application you're using on the phone, they're getting a complete and utter recording of that on their end. Because I, I wonder about that, because this is for Android, right? I'm, I'm just thinking well, of, no? So it is, it is for Android, but it, it, a little later I was going to mention that they also found out that it works on the Apple iPhone 6. Interesting. So it wasn't just on the... It wasn't just on the, the uh, is there some sort of common video standard, or they implement it once for each platform? That's a good question. Okay. Um, I, I know from, from the, the Android side, 
they use it using the, I guess that the, the, the connector that allows you to do, it's the HDMI, I forget what the connector is. Maybe Jim, Jim, do you know what that, that connector is? They, they mentioned it. It's like I an forget. HDMI it's a, mini on some Android models. Right. Uh, but I haven't seen one in a while. So it's basically the difference between the, the two pin and the eight pin, which most people don't, won't recognize that when they, when they come up to a charging station. Mm -hmm. It is one way to tell the difference, whether or not you are getting more than you bargained for. If you actually look at the connector, and the, the, the story actually shows a, a nice close-up picture of it, and it's easy to see, mm -hmm. it's close up, so you, know, you realize that those connectors are pretty small. So being able to tell when you're looking inside if you're seeing only two pins versus eight pins may be a little bit difficult. Okay. Um, but most but, people won't be looking. Most people won't be looking, yeah, exactly. So it, it, it turns out, and I, I think you know this very well, but the guys who actually did this are the same guys that, that stand up the wall of sheep. Ah, uh, yeah, they like Def messing Con. with, with right. people. So, so they, had, they had the little charging station set up you know, near where they had the wall of sheep. Um, and, and obviously, you know, they were telling folks that, hey, you know, there was clearly signs, and I think they actually had, uh, little lights that would come up on to tell you whether or not they had successfully been Were able to Were they showing mirror. your screen on, the, on a big screen um, somewhere? You know, I didn't see anybody's screen being mirrored, so okay. I don't know if they maybe had it somewhere else and I wasn't able to see it, um, but supposedly they had little lights that would sort of right, like, right, light up red hmm. to, to signify that they actually had that successfully mirrored the device. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So a couple of other interesting facts. So obviously they, they actually did test it on an, uh, an Apple iPhone 6 mm -hmm. and were successfully able to do it. They had to use a different cable mm -hmm. to do the video conversion or whatever from, the, from that phone, but they were able to successfully do it. And they, were, they, they said that they could easily hide that within the, the charging system, you know, the, the charging station. Mm -hmm. um, they also said that you know, putting the whole thing together, charging station with the mirroring capability, they were able to do it for about 220 bucks. Oh, wow. And they also, the, the guy who wrote this article also mentions that uh, because you're in a charging station, power is definitely not an issue for you. Mm -hmm. So being able to set something up where you're actually remotely sending the video to some other monitor that's not in the same room so that the people who are actually running this hack mm -hmm. don't actually physically have to go back to collect any inf any any equipment right from the you know from the scene of the crime hmm. in essence mm -hmm. so but you basically you just send the video off you could be sitting in another room or something collect all you need pack your stuff up and and go. You leave interesting yeah because at that point I mean, you're not worried about running down the phone's battery or anything, yeah. No, right, huh. yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty good, although I, you gotta wonder if, if, they, if people knew the wall of sheep guys, they, they probably wouldn't trust any of their hardware. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Anybody who's seen that wall knows that, that they're out to, to find people's yeah. uh, uh, Pretty, pretty much you, you walk into that room and you stop trusting everything. <laughs> I think you walk into that whole casino and you right. stop trusting exactly. everything. That's DEFCON and Black Hat for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. Cool well, there's a reason why I own one of those uh, right blocking dongles and use my own cable. Mm -hmm. Yep, and that's and that's uh, that's one of the things that they had listed as you know things that you could try to do to protect yourself. Which is um, on the Android devices. I'm, I, I guess I don't have an Android device, but you can disable. Supposedly, you could disable video mirroring. Mm -hmm. Although, 
in tests that didn't always work. Uh. So you may think you had set it to video to not to disable that video mirroring, but they proved that even with it set, they were still able to. <laughs> so that that sounds like an interesting new security feature because you know you have on Android at least if you have like USB debugging enabled for you know if you want to send things back and forth to your phone data wise or like tinker around with the the, the shell. That's a, that's a toggle. That you, to, you have to explicitly turn it on, and then right. once you've done it, you have to take a look at the, the hardware ID that says, do you want to trust this device for what? USB debugging? I feel like the right approach would be implement a similar question, you know, do you want to trust this device for video mirroring? Right. And that would be the right way to, as long as they get it to actually work. Right. Now, now and, and that's an interesting thing, because they actually did mention in here that, um, uh, Again, I, I, had, I haven't seen this, but with an Android device, supposedly when you plug in a cable that allows you to do the HDMI out, mm -hmm. that there, I guess some manufacturers do pop up a message that says that you have plugged in an HDMI capable cable. Hmm. But I think not all manufacturers pop that message up to tell you that you've done so. That sounds like it might be a third-party modification to Android then. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So obviously there's, you know, those, there's that, you know, making sure that you, if you want to charge it at some place that you don't know to make sure that you have your own two-pronged charging cord. Mm -hmm. um, and also probably the best thing to do is just stay clear of those things and carry your own charging brick. That's true. That's very <laughs> or, or like I said, they, for less than 10 bucks, you can get these little, what amount to adapters that are yeah. power only out. Or you can take a pair of scissors and uh, a little bit of electrical tape and you can make your own just by cutting some of the lines within the USB cable. Uh, that may be too much work for some people, right. but I, I find it to be fun. Um, <laughs> Less than 10 bucks, you got the little thing, yeah. plug that in first, then your cable into it, and you're only getting power out. Yep. Cool. All right. Thanks, Manny. Yep. Uh, Jim, let's go to you for the next one. This one seems pretty interesting and uh, a little esoteric, but potentially very powerful. Yeah, this was interesting. Um, the, there were a, a number of researchers from... Uh, UC Riverside and yeah, I'm forgetting off the top of my head where U.S. Army Research Lab, uh, who presented a paper at the USENIX Security Conference last week, where they discussed some of their research that basically enables attackers to either terminate connections uh, between server and a client someplace, or in some cases, even inject material into an existing TCP connection. The heart of it is, it, right now, it's only, it only works against Linux systems running kernel 3.6 or later. 3.6 was introduced in about 2012. And the reason is, the other OSs, uh, Mac OS, uh, Windows, and so on, have not yet implemented RFC 5961. RFC 5961 was released in August two of 2010, and it was supposed to um, improve the, the ability to detect um, blind in-window attacks, uh, uh, blind 
TCP injection type attacks. The problem is, obviously, in the implementation that is in the Linux kernel, they're a little too strict. I won't go into all the technical details for those who care. The, the paper is available from the UC Riverside website. Basically, it can be kind of nasty in that an attacker can, by sending packets to you know, both the server or the client, can uh, fairly quickly, less than a minute, um, determine whether there are, is TCP connection existing between the two, and then also fairly quickly determine the sequence numbers the, or the range of sequence numbers involved in the attack. Uh, you know, those who are familiar with the IPID guessing attacks of, well, must be eight, ten years ago now, um, they've modified it so that they can basically narrow things down fairly quickly. A fix that has been accepted into the current kernel, uh, 4.7 kernel, uh, as of uh, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, will probably be getting rolled out, you know, backported and rolled out in most Linux distributions soon. One quick fix right now is there's a particular um, syscontrol uh, value that can be set very large that basically prevents the guessing attack from working. So how many packets would it take to actually... Um implement this attack? Is this going to cause a storm of traffic on your network just to do that inference attack? No. That, that's the key part of finding in their paper, is how they were able to uh, narrow it down so they can do it with relatively few packets. So it's not like you're going to see boatloads of SYN packets uh, that will you know, light up your DOS defenses anyway. The key in this research is they found ways to do it very efficiently. So the, until, they, until the uh, kernel updates come out and get backported, like I said, the vulnerability exists back to kernel 3.6 where they first implemented the RFC 5961 stuff up through the current one. Well, you know, lots of Linux systems are still running older kernels that get security patches but don't get all the feature updates. Mm -hmm. So once the this patch gets backported to all of those back to 3.6, then you should be seeing updates in your Linux distributions applying this fix. But as I said, in the meantime, uh, there is a particular workaround that is discussed um, in the in the Lookout blog uh, link that will be uh, down below when you see the show. And uh, in the BobCares.com blog, uh, it's a real simple right. workaround. But the, the other scary part is, um, as Lookout pointed out in their blog post, uh, 80% of the existing Android devices out there are running 
kernel 3.6 or greater. So this this affects not just your Linux servers and you know, for those of us who run the Linux desktop, but it also run, affects your Android devices. Uh, so right, right now it's mostly mostly a DOS issue. I mean, they did do a uh, demonstrated the injection, but that's that one's a little more complicated. But the ability to, you know, blindly terminate connections between, you know, hosts uh, is itself a, a bit of a concern. I mean, if I can consistently knock you off of your, you know, your VPN or, you know, prevent you from connecting to your bank by, you know, by taking advantage of this, there the bad guys can find, you know, uses for that capability. Sure. All right. Thanks a lot, Jim. Uh, Manny, you are up next, and this one is pretty cool, and I actually, I especially like the presentation of the bug on their website. Reminded me of a lot of the old stuff from the, I'm not saying I've ever seen any any cracked software, but that sort of, you know, animated design, flying star field kind of thing really kind of brought me back to (laughs) that. So yeah, so this uh, this story um, named the secure golden key boot attack. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, uh, a couple of researchers the, with Twitter handles um, at never underscore released and at the Wackolian, which was in- interesting. Um, <clears throat> they basically um, announced in a in a blog post. That uh, that they could bypass this Windows Secure Boot, which we know is a is sort of a feature of the the UEFI, mm-hmm. which is the you know on most um, recent um, hardware today, you know PC hardware today is the sort of the re- the replacement BIOS. So yeah. it's the BIOS that m- many of the machines today is are actually using. Um, so this Windows Secure Boot, um, Windows came up with this. I'm not even sure when they came up with it. it, it I think it goes back quite, quite a ways. I, I do remember there was some, I think it was the controversy of when this first came out, and people were wondering if it could be used to lock like Linux off of a system. Right. Yeah, I, I forget, that, I think was that was a, a big concern ago, then. Yeah. So the Linux in, you know, community kind of went up in arms a little bit because they, they, were, they were saying, you know, wait a minute, is this going to stop us from loading Linux on most of the new hardware that's going to be produced from here on in? Right. Windows had basically set it up so that um, they sort of were pushing the manufacturers this way because if the manufacturer wanted to be certified for Windows, mm-hmm. so get that little the sticker that we see on a lot of our you know hardware today, right. they would have to implement this UEFI BIOS. Okay. Um, so that that was sort of a force from Microsoft to you know get these get folks the the PC hardware uh, makers to actually implement this UEFI. Um, it turned out that even back then, the Linux community didn't have much to worry about because they also allowed you to turn it off. Mm-hmm. So you could opt to turn UEFI off, the secure boot off, I mean, right. the secure boot off, um, which would allow you to in- install you know, other OSs on, on hardware. So all was great then. So again, back to today, um, these researchers you know, found out that there was a, there was a bug that allowed you to basically circumvent this, this secure boot. Mm-hmm. 
They had gone back, uh, I guess they had notified Microsoft back in the March, April timeframe this year. Um, <clears throat> and again, this secure boot, what it, in essence it allows you to do or doesn't allow you to do is, is basically it controls at boot time, um, it basically certifies what you know, software can run and what things are loaded mm -hmm. as part of the boot up process. So it basically certifies that everything is as it's supposed to be. And it's using what, a cryptographic signature of some kind? Uh, I, I believe it does. I believe it uses a crypt cryptographic signature. Um, I'd, have to double, I'd have to double check that, but I, I believe that's what it uses to certify, to, to check that certification against, um, to make sure that that's actually, uh, again, software, um, you know, drivers that are supposed to be loaded as part of the boot up. So okay. if anything fails as part of that, 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 that startup sequence, it won't let you actually boot into the, into the OS. What these researchers ended up finding out was that they found out that this, this secure boot, um, actually Microsoft had a, a created a backdoor for this. Wow. So, and we've seen this quite a bit with a lot of stuff that we've probably talked about, you know, over the years. <clears throat> this ability to, and this was a, a developer backdoor. So as part of the development process of this whole thing, <clears throat> they created a, a backdoor that allowed their developers to bypass that policy mm -hmm. in order to, for them to do more rapid testing of, the, of this feature. Unfortunately, as it. we all know, that they left it in, mm. as you know, they unfortunately left it in, and over time, it eventually leaked out. Uh. So that information finally leaked out. These these researchers found this 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 leaked you know um, uh, backdoor, mm -hmm. and then were able to prove that you could start writing code that used this backdoor to circumvent the secure boot. Oh, okay. So in essence, you would think that you are secure booting your machine, when in essence, you're not, and you may be actually loading. Somebody uh, else's image. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. So the, the issue, there was a couple of things that they had brought up in, in this particular article. So one of the things is that um, the, it, it appears that in some Windows 10 PCs, you actually can't turn this off. Right, so we talked about being you able to. You can't turn the back door off. You can't turn. You can't turn the 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 UEF UEFI the the secure boot. I think you can't turn that that piece of it off. Hmm. Um, because so in essence, you you could in essence turn that off and say, look, I'm not worried about the secure boot portion of it. I'll just shut that off. Okay. But in certain Windows 10 uh, machines, you that control doesn't actually work. Oh. So in essence, you have to keep it turned on, which if somebody is able to, to get this code to bypass the secure boot, you have sort of no way to... It. So are you saying that if, if that was that the case, that my Windows 10 box was locked and secure boot could not be turned off, does this exploit allow me a bypass to run my own software there? Is that what it's... Is, you know, that sounds moderately helpful in the case that I can't actually use the system the way I expected it to. On the other hand, if I've got a system that I only want it to run Windows 10, and that's the way I expect it, this also is a way of 
running anything else. Exactly. Yeah, and okay. I think that's and I think that's ultimately the problem here. Um, now, again, these researchers had gone back and and sort of let Microsoft know back in the March-April timeframe that they had found this, mm -hmm. and so since then, Microsoft actually has um, released two patches so far to address this issue, mm -hmm. um, which. From what I understand, and I didn't get any details about what was included in these patches and what they did to patch this, because I'm not sure if we, I've actually seen any of the, the actual... The, patches go out? No, no, I just haven't seen any of what the actual exploit involves. So how do you okay. get around the secure boot? I don't know, I haven't seen that. But <clears throat> these patches um, addressed some of the issues with that. Unfortunately, it hasn't, according to this article, it hasn't addressed them all. So there still is a way to circumvent this, but the two patches have made it much harder to do, okay. is what I understand. Microsoft actually released a statement, which is, this was interesting. So the statement actually goes, the jailbreak technique described in the researcher's report on August 10th does not apply to desktop or enterprise PC systems. Mm -hmm. It requires physical access and administrator rights to ARM and RT devices and does not compromise encryption protections. Interesting, because so, ARM and RT <clears throat> makes up a relatively small part of Windows deployments. Right, mm. right. Yeah, so, and, and again, it, they're saying here that it also requires physical access and administrative rights. I guess, what, what does administrative rights mean when you're in the UEFI? It means you know the UEFI password, I guess? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a good question. Um, I, I hadn't even thought about administrative rights when you think about administrative rights you you think about those after you've in the, the operating system right, when it's running yeah. is and this is running. all as far as i understand it before that right huh. yeah so that's an interesting interesting note that you know that they're saying here that that, that the vulnerability has been limited down and that, that, that it does require physical access so it does kind of minimize the the threat uh, you know mm -hmm. uh, vector a little bit um, but again, there's still that, you know, there's still this potential hole, which, you know, if I understand correctly, if you're smart enough and understand how this actually works, there is still a way to circumvent the okay. secure boot. Mm -hmm. You know, I keep thinking, because UEFI, there's a lot of really interesting features that, that motherboard manufacturers have actually used to... To, to build basically a, a miniature operating system before Windows or Linux or your major operating system boots. Some of them even have network connectivity built into that. So as soon as your board powers on, you know, you can go out and search for updates without booting into Windows. Right. So, you know, they, they say right now that it requires physical access, but I think as people work with this technique, they may find ways to, you know, if your network card is on at that point, maybe uh -oh. there is an attack surface there. Maybe there's somewhere more you could go with it. I mean, I'm not saying they've done this now, obviously, but it gets you thinking a little yeah. bit because when you, people still assume physical access for a lot of these, you know, it's you know, it's it's before the operating system. What can it do? Well, it can kind of do a lot. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks a lot, Manny. Yep. So I've been gone for two weeks, and we haven't talked about Mr. Robot on the show. So I'm going to try and make it up. And I'm glad that, Manny, you've seen these episodes. Uh, if you haven't seen these episodes, now would be a good time to fast forward. And if you're Jim, who hasn't seen these episodes, now would be a good time to cover your eyes and ears. Uh, so. Give you a few seconds there to do what you need to do. Um, so, <laughs> episode three, awesome opening. I really enjoyed the hacking sequence using Metasploit. 
everything I could see there was pretty accurate. And the way he was talking about being excited about hacking and getting into the zone. Right. I think I've been there. I've done a little bit of pen testing myself. I know exactly what that's like. So I was excited to see that. I was like, yeah, he gets it. He does. I like how you call it pen testing. But continue. That's what I was doing. <laughs> um, there was a bit where Darlene did an, made an image of, of Angela's laptop. I didn't quite understand what was going on there, but I think I want to keep an eye on it for the future because that might be her insurance against Angela in the future. Mm -hmm. Not sure. The big reveal at the end of this episode, again, please, everybody, spoilers. Um, <sighs> So Elliot gets asked to set up a website for his, his friend, and I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the actor's name or the, the character's name, uh, but it turns out that this is a darknet market that this guy is running, and he's selling all sorts of terrible things oh, on yeah. this market. Yeah, Lots of terrible things. Uh, it was interesting when the, the one tech guy was talking to, to Elliot and said, you know, here's how you set up the site, and Elliot says, looks like it's a standard deployment. They actually have a list of commands that he's supposed to run. And these are all involved with setting up Tor. And this is not a standard deployment by any means. I mean, unless you're running a darknet market. But I think Elliot should have, at that point, you yeah. should have caught up to what's actually going on here. But they save that for the very end when you start seeing what's listed on the site. Interesting, the, the name Midland City is actually a reference to Kurt Vonnegut novels, which ones I haven't read, so I can't really say what the significance is. Mm. Um, someone's actually set up a fake Midland City .onion site just to show that it, because there's, there's some crazy fans out there. Right. Um, and they, I think there's actually some sort of alternate reality game going on where there might be a fake Midland City as well as part mm. of that. Um, and Dread Pirate Roberts was the, ac the admin account that he logged in under, which for people who are following Darknet Markets, Dread Pirate Roberts was the name of the admin of Silk Road, which is alleged to be, or maybe he's already been convicted, I forget, uh, Ross Ulbricht was Dread Pirate Roberts at that time. Okay. Um, it's also a reference to The Princess Bride, which I actually did watch a couple weekends ago. And, the, and the, no, it's a great movie. It, oh, has a, it has a name that you're like, oh, God, Princess Bride, what could that possibly... It's really good. Uh, but The Dread Pirate Roberts was a title passed down through the generations. One guy would ha hand it off to another to another. So the idea of The Dread Pirate Roberts would always stick around. There would always be one, but it was not the same guy in case something happened to him. Like so, Doctor Who. Almost like the Doctor. <laughs> I would even say it's more like uh, the Phantom, that old comic book character, the terrible movie with Billy Zane, or, or V in V for Vendetta. Oh, no, V for Vendetta, yeah. You remember what happens at the end of that one? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So that's episode three. The tech was pretty good. Uh, episode four, though, I think really blew me out of the water. Oh, First yeah. off, the opening sequence was wacky. <laughs> I loved it. It just had this weird set of, you know, it, it's... For those who've seen it, it's the, the, the 90s television intro and has everything that you remember from those kinds of sitcoms. Yeah. Uh, but it goes pretty weird and dark pretty fast. Yeah, uh, I thought I was watching the wrong show. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it was great, especially because they used the old USA TV logo right. from that era, which I guess they got, I mean, it's a USA TV show, they can do what they want, but I got a real kick out of that. And the laugh track in the background. The laugh track, <laughs> who's doing that? <laughs> who's laughing? Uh, so the tech, anyway, uh, Open WRT and Cali make appearances again, standard tech. Uh, the femto cells, as they describe them, are a real thing. Um, I'm curious to see, because it sounded like the Dark Army had made some modifications to the femto cell that they brought in, because remember Cisco, he gets it from that friend of his in the library, but then some, they're, they're talking about it. He says, what, what, am I, what have you done to this? You know, I need to know these are my friends. Mm -hmm. The rubber ducky. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that I've seen for sale. I think Hack5 sells those. It might have even had the right sticker on it. Uh, that's legit tech. That's basically uh, a thumb drive. That it's, it can be part thumb drive, but mostly the, the cool part is it, it emulates uh, a HID device, human interface. You plug it in. 
it, the, the computer picks it up as a keyboard, and then seconds later, it starts typing a pre-programmed package. Mm. So in this case, it was set up to run Mimikatz, which is a tool for pulling Windows credentials out of memory. Right. This, this all does make sense. This is what you would do. Plug it in for a second, yank stuff out of memory, save it to the drive, pull it back out. Darlene uses a modified mag spoof, and I, knew, I think I knew this was coming because I was looking at Sammy Kamkar's uh, Twitter feed, and he said something is coming up in Mr. Robot. Mm. And so mag spoof was a device he made that you can load it with credit card information, you can press a button, and it, it pulses to, to create that same pattern of stripes, but you don't actually have to put it in a card reader like the card swipe device. You just put it ne nearby, and it has the same exact effect. No. The one in the show was modified, and I think it was using, a, it looked like a square credit card reader, you know, the little dongle ones you plug yep. into the audio port. Probably a, if it was in the real world, it would have to be an early square reader because eventually they modified them, I think, so that they wouldn't send clear data out of them because people were starting to use them for that kind of purpose for snarfing cards. Right. But soup to nuts, what, what Darlene was carrying would allow you to steal a card and then replay it directly replay, to the lock. Right. Yep. So that was cool. That was really neat. Yeah. Um, so Angela had a phone with Signal installed. Signal is uh, it's crypto, free crypto tool that allows you to encrypt um, messages back and forth and also do phone calls. And I was excited to see it because I am a user of Signal. Um, and when you set up a voice call, it usually gives you a phrase to read just so that you know that, that nobody else is the man in the middle of it. So you read off the phrase to the person on the side of the phone, they read your phrase, and it's like, okay, we're both who we say we are. Right. Uh, the phrase in this case was marble cake. And I'm not going to define that. You, if you really want to know, you can Google it. But the, the hacker reference is back in 2009, there was a Time 100, best, was called the, the, the Time 100 poll, which is like Time's people of the year, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, and there was a group of hackers that managed to vote, do set up automated voting, so that the ranking of the top first few people would spell out the message, marble cake, the, also the game. And the game is a game where if you think about the game, you've lost the game. And it was really popular back in high school and college. So those of you who are watching, you've just lost the game. Uh, good luck. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was a Wi-Fi access point that Darlene access, accesses at one point. Um, the name of it, I believe, was a reference to the Wannick worm, or at least to the authors of the Wannick worm, which is something that we've seen. And it, it usually has a little like text banner that has the name of this access point. Again, something appropriate for late night television, but not for a threat track. Right. But go check that out. <laughs> Look up the Wannick worm and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, Darlene mentions a Juniper screen OS backdoor, which was actually something that came out late last year. It was found that somebody had inserted a backdoor into this Juniper screen OS source code. Uh, Juniper had an investigation around that. I don't know if they ever told us who put it there, uh, but it was interesting that it existed in the first place. Yeah. And my little fan moment here Andrew was supposed to wipe down the devices that she had placed under the desk for that one scene. And I was watching her. I was like, oh, my God, she's going to miss one. She's going to miss one. She's absolutely missed, like, a whole handful oh, of yeah. fingerprints. And I swear the next episode she's going to be, they're going to know it's her. So right. I'm excited for the next one. And well, they're still doing a great job. Well, your, uh, your theory about, uh, about Angela having, or, or Darlene having the, the... The insurance on the side? The insurance on the side might yeah. come into play there, but... Uh, but yeah, I, I like that. And then, and then obviously the the final final scene of of that episode where where um, the where they're the, in the car, the, where they're in the car yep. with the, with the son. So it's a flashback of them, you know, opening up the store. Yep. 
that was pretty cool. That was pretty like cool, that. and it cuts off right before you know exactly what he's going <laughs> right. to say. His eyes open up, and you know exactly what he's going to say, but they cut it. Yep. <laughs> it's like the end of the, the second Avengers, or the first Avengers movie. Let's get to, not get too nerdy, <laughs> yeah. but I think it was the same kind of thing. Anyway, let's go to the Internet Weather Report. Uh, for this week, the top 10 most probe ports, not too many surprises. 23 TCP Telnet is still the reigning champion. Uh, a little bit under, I'd say probably 40, 45% of the, the top 10. Uh, 53.413 is that Netis router backdoor. Uh, 53.413 UDP, that is, um, that we talk about every week. The one where you send a single UDP packet containing a shell command and you own the box. Uh, 22 TCP is SSH. 80 and 443 are both web ports. 33.89 is RDP. 123 UDP and 53 UDP are, are NTP and DNS, respectively, often used for reflective denial of service and amplification attacks. Uh, 1911 is that Niagara AX uh, control systems that we keep seeing. Uh, and 445 is Windows networking, sometimes attributed with uh, Conficker, which is still out there and still going fairly strong in terms of trying to find more vulnerable boxes. Uh, scan probes on port 23 TCP, you can see still pretty high up there. They've actually tapered off over the last few, few weeks. And if the trend continues, we may be returning to somewhat normal levels for the last 30 days. Uh, that is if the trend continues. Uh, took a look again at 53.413, which used, again, that UDP bug, that's a 30-day window. And we had a huge spike maybe back in July. That's when it was really at the top of the charts. Seems like it's gone back down. There's still a significant, what I'd call a noise floor in that scanning, uh, but nowhere near the interest that used to be there. That's kind of interesting. Um, I haven't heard anything about that bug actually getting patched. Right. So either maybe it's been patched quietly and these guys have figured it out. Possible that it hasn't been patched and the entire or a significant portion of them have been you know, taken over. And at this point, there's not any value in scanning, but right. you never know. Um, not sure exactly what's the reason for this, but uh, would love to see what's happening with it in the future. And the top 10 most sources probing um, 23TCP is still the, the Pac-Man's share of that scanning. 53413, 445, we've talked about most of these in the last, back with the, um, uh, the top ports probed, and 6881 UDP and TCP, I believe, are both related to BitTorrent, which is an interesting thing. It may be that there was some sort of disruption, because typically, you know, we look at scanning as, as connections that were attempted, not necessarily completed, Maybe there was a major disruption somewhere within BitTorrent. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of those peers and seeds out there. It's possible something might have gone skiffy. Yep. Uh, and 4028, um, Jim, uh, I can't remember what we, we said. This was DT server, something like that. DT like server is what IANA has registered for that, and I'm not sure exactly what DT server in this case refers to. Okay. Yeah, there's some interesting ones that are still around in those IANA registered ports, things that you, you can't even find the original registrant for, so right. sometimes it's a bit of a bit of a guess unless you actually have the traffic to look at. Anyway, that is the show for today. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel, on YouTube, and on iTunes. I believe that's an audio version. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. So thank you, Jim, for joining us today. Thank you, Manny. 
I'm Matt Kaiser. We'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.